Welcome to SAR JV's podcast, Sardisms. I'm Mariah Young. Joe Wilkinson's on holiday, but we'll be back next episode. We're both employees of SARD, where we love great technology coupled with great customer service. The main aim of SARD is to help improve the NHS, England's public health service. Healthcare and IT are ever-changing, and we are interested in the ways that we can help it evolve with the growing population. In today's episode, we have two very special guests. Kevin Monk and Phil Bottle, who are the co-founders of SAR JV. Needless to say, these two have been through it all, highs and lows, but mostly highs. SARD has continued to grow throughout the years with innovative ideas, unique collaborations. The future is bright with SARD. Yeah, I'm very, I'm very energized now. Yeah, great intro. (laughs) Let's just dive right in. And um, how did SAR JV get its start? I'll I'll tell it from my perspective very briefly. um, And then obviously... Kev can fill in his parts of it, but yeah, but I, I I used to work for Oxley's NHS Foundation Trust, which is a mental health trust um, in Southeast London, and and I was lucky enough to work for a wonderful HR director um, called Simon Hart, who encouraged me from day one with this sort of mantra: seek forgiveness and don't ask permission, which essentially was giving me a blank piece of paper to say things aren't really working the way we'd like them to work. And instead of coming in with lots of preconceived ideas, um, create something new. And part of that was building some systems. So um, we were, I think, seen as quite a rebellious group, um, all about change, changing things up, making things better. So I was um, I was given the opportunity to head sort of several internal software projects, um, which is where I met Kevin, and that was around sort of reporting, learning management systems, appraisal systems. And and obviously not being a a technical bob myself, I required the help of someone who could deliver these things. So I was introduced to Kevin and uh, and Kevin said, yeah, not a problem. We can build those things. Um, And actually the the change that took place in the trust when we started to introduce these systems was was massive. In fact, um, uh, Simon said that he used to spend a good hour in every board meeting discussing the problems with the data. And once we introduced these systems, he said it took five minutes because people trusted it. So it was a good start. And anyway, that that then led to our medical director coming along and saying, we've got this thing called revalidation coming up um, and you've been successful in building these systems. Could you have a go at this? So of course, called on Kevin. Um, and that's really the start of the process of, of building things. Um, and it became so successful in terms of what it was. And I'll let Kev describe how the, the moment that it kind of turned into something else, but, but around no sort of November, 2011, um, there was a few meetings going around about setting up a joint venture. Um, and within the space of less than two months, we were live with, with Saad JV, um, and really, like any good software company, we started in a garage. It was, albeit a converted garage, it was a garage nonetheless, right, Kev? Yeah, it was a garage. I had cars going in and out of it at some point, being fixed. There, there you go. So that, that, that's my sort of brief synopsis of where it came from. And so, so I'll let Kevin fill in the blanks about the, the where it really turned into something different. Yeah, that's pretty much how I remember it. In fact, I think our first meeting, Phil, because um, what it was is one of uh, Phil's colleagues who's now moved off to Australia. I I sort of knew him from when I lived in Crystal Palace and uh, I got talking to him down the pub as these things happen. And he was talking about, you know, the work he was doing there. And 
he just phoned me up um kind of following week and said oh we've got this 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 thing we're doing at work would you mind coming and have a look at it and i think i'm right in saying that our my first meeting with you phil i think i just turned up in my shorts and t-shirt yeah and a scrap of paper and a pencil and i was like what are you trying to do and just try to fill it out fill fill out that world work out what what your issues were it was really refreshing for me because I, I'd seen the big organisation side of things when I worked for the Ministry of Defence. I'd seen how you have these massive entities and they're buying big battleships and these huge procurement that there's all this detail and quite understandably there's quite a lot of bureaucracy and admin but then occasionally and I saw this in the Ministry of Defence you'd come across a group that was a little bit rebellious a little bit full of pirates I call them people who are breaking out of the things they're supposed to be doing and trying to find new ways I mean I even remember in the MOD a guy phoning me up on Easter Sunday he was a um in the signals team there and he was um trying to defuse a bomb and he phoned me on <laughs> the beach but that's not the normal way wow. that's not that you know it was supposed to go for his chain of command but you spoke directly to what is a civilian which is me the techie and he and it, they were a lovely bunch of the british army to deal with because their life was on the line they, they just they they went to the thing that, that was going to make it work and they ignored all the bureaucracy and uh i turned up to in this nhs trust and it felt like there was another one of these little groups of people who were like well this is a job we've been tasked with here's all of the the bureaucracy uh but we don't want to do it like that <laughs> can you come in and solve this problem and that's what phil and his team and i think the culture as phil said that simon uh, heart created there i'm not sure he was i don't know you you know him better but i felt like it came from you and jeff to be honest much <laughs> well he he just got out of the way which was the the way to do it because if we had done it the traditional route we would have had to have written business papers that would have gone to groups of people that had some knowledge maybe which is often as kevin says is more dangerous than having no knowledge in some respects and and it would have gone around in circles for for months and months and months if not years but in, instead we're able to produce something which the first system became lovingly known as pandora because we didn't quite realize what we had opened up when we did it but it's it's solved so many issues um even issues that as i say when simon talked about the board meeting issues that that weren't really relevant as part of the goal he never said to me i want to reduce the time i talk about this in the board meeting but but nonetheless it, it did so i think i think we were very lucky to you know as kevin said the fact that he met jeff down the pub the fact that introduction happened we, we were very lucky so i think we, we we understand that that it maybe was just a moment that happened that was supposed to happen and led to the next 10 years of all of this yeah so. and then there was after that there was a sort of like two or three year period where we after pandora there was like this is great can we do this again with some this other thing over here so we worked on other projects together and then eventually um oxys were picked as a pilot for revalidation um which was just just coming in um and because of that dr akotcha who's the, the medical director there and very much one of the founders of Saad. He said, oh, I heard about, you know, I think he said, oh, I heard about these projects and he'd seen the good work had been done on it. Can you produce something for us here? So we did. And under that same kind of framework, we very slim line group of people, just me and uh, Barbara, our CTO and Phil got going uh, and Bookie Agundi um, got going on building this pilot for revalidation. And so that was great. And we built a really good system there. And then there was this moment where, um, 
Dr. Okocha said to me, oh, this, is, this, this software is great. Can you come and show it to the other responsible offices in London? Because I'm sure they'd love to see what, what we've been up to, especially as we're a pilot site. Um, and me being really naive and green about these things, I, I had no idea that why, why I was going there. I thought it was like an information sharing thing. I thought it was, oh, this is a nice fluffy NHS. This is the project we've been working on. What do you, what do you think of this thing we've made, like show and tell, like kids at school or something? <laughs> <laughs> and they'd go, oh, that's really nice. <laughs> Good for you. And, uh, and they did do that. And they all sat around this, there's all loads of medical directors and responsible officers for London. They all sat around this table. I think there's probably about 10, 15 people there. So pretty much... Uh, a good chunk of the most senior doctors in the country and I presented this system and uh, they said oh that's really good that's great how much is it and I went oh uh, uh, <laughs> I didn't come here to sell it to you I just came to show you what what we built and they went oh that's really good but we control billions of pounds worth of budget between all of us maybe you should sell it to us wow <laughs> and then I didn't really think much about it for a couple of weeks and then um, Dr. Kutcher phoned me up and said you know what we really should commercialize this thing because it'd be good for you it's a good product it will it will really serve those people well um but if we create a joint venture then it will benefit us as a trust and we get um, a really nice symbiotic relationship because everyone wins out of that scenario the the hospitals get the thing that they want because it's been sort of grown from the ground up it's come from the the allotment of the nhs it's come it's homegrown um the the NHS trust itself, Oxley's, uh, our parent trust, they get this this software company that's um, been a good commercial success for them. And um, it takes all that hard work that um, Barbara in particular had put in to actually producing the software and making it more useful for a wider group of people. So yeah, that was our, that was our, what we would call like the accidental Dragon's Den moment where we turned up to Dragon's <laughs> Den Love that. and but didn't know we were in it. And then th- and, and then that sort of kick-started it. One wonderful guy called uh, Jonathan Wood, um, who was our business advisor, sadly died a couple of years back. He, again, I, you know, I was very young, and we were both young when we started this, and I didn't really know anything about run, even running a business. So I, we had the software company, but I don't know, share ownership and how we'd actually form a joint venture. So I just went to Jonathan, and, uh, who, who was introduced to me via a friend, and I said, look, I just don't know what I'm doing, really. Can someone come and, can a grown-up come and explain? <laughs> <laughs> can I get a chaperone, please? That's what he was. I yeah. showed him a business plan, actually, and I think he was really impressed that I even had a business plan and, that, and it was thought out and the cash flow and things like that. And, and that started a really lovely uh, relationship, didn't it, Phil? Yeah, yeah it He did. was a wonderful man. Yeah. Um, absolute genius. He was, uh, he was a advisor to number 10 so he worked for uh john major and maggie thatcher and tony blair and um he did yeah he he was a chemistry um uh i think he got first in chemistry from oxford right oxford yeah yeah so yeah yeah. very smart man very very clever um but very practical as well too so he he helped us form that company and I said well if I'm going to do this I really need Phil in on this as well so we got Phil seconded um, and then eventually he never went back <laughs> never went Good. back no. and uh-huh. not a moment not a moment of regret either <laughs> Good. he's been my business husband ever since 
<laughs> Aww, what a special relationship you two it is well we've, we've, we've seen it all haven't we I was, I was just briefly i mean we as kevin said i think we were both really naive when we started my my favorite moment of all was when we went to our first demonstration and we went fully armed with dr Kopcher and and bookie the uh, sort of oxley's representatives in us and we went in and we had a great presentation and then kevin and i were almost high-fiving outside oh that one's in the bag brilliant this is so easy <laughs> of course we didn't win it um <laughs> But it was, we had to learn a lot of lessons really very quickly. And we, there's some great stories about our guys in St. Thomas's first demonstration and our phone boards, which are still up in the office in Crystal Palace. And you know, selling a system when you're not actually showing a system was, was fun. But, but the good news is, is we, we learned from all of these things and it allowed us to grow to where we are today. So uh, how would you guys describe the use of software in the NHS currently? The application of software in the NHS is definitely improving. I think for such a long time, it was always seen as something to capture the outcome of something, like a process that we need to record it. Um, that's what a lot of the systems, especially in our, our area, you know, I'm not, I'm not talking about all technology within the NHS, but in our area, it was more to do with catching it rather than sort of supporting the process and even sort of helping to gain efficiencies and improve how processes work. I think that that, that was always a difficulty, but I think there has been a shift and you've seen the shift sort of moving along in terms of NHSI and, and other groups and NHSX where they're starting to try to think about how can we really utilise systems to to give us an advantage in, in the NHS as opposed to, to not, I think, but we also have to realize it's really complicated. There's, you know, it can be thousands of systems in play at any one time in, in the NHS. And, and part of the real problem that they've suffered with is, is that they all sort of work in silos. You know, these systems are, 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 are used for a task or, or maybe one or two tasks. And, and actually the NHS, being the sort of complicated animal that it is, requires data and information to flow. You know, they need information about patients. They need information about what their staff are doing, um, things, areas that we're involved in, revalidation, rostering. They need all these things, but they all really need to talk to each other. So they they definitely sort of shifted the focus around interoperability. And I think one of the things that we're really trying to do to push that even further forward is is to think about what that really means and how it can really work. Because I think the danger is, is because of the, the legacy of systems within the NHS, I think the, the view is about interoperability is more around how things used to work than how things should work and how they could work in the future. So, yeah, I think we're seeing definite signs of improvement and hopefully we are we're helping in our own little way to to push that forward. Yeah, that's a great answer. I'm glad you did it. <laughs> that's my answer. One he just said. Ditto. No, it is right. Like so much of the data capture was about just visibility and pointing at things and going, "This is this is how many of X has happened," um, and it's something that we keep on at. Um, in our own company is that if we, we have KPIs and we have uh, monthly business 
meet, management meetings where we like look at those KPIs. And one of the things I keep saying and something that we keep coming back to is that those KPIs are only useful if you look at them and it changes your behavior. If nothing's moved, some process hasn't got easier. If that's not information that's actually helping you make better decisions and move towards some, some long-term goal, then, then they're not useful KPIs. And I think that's probably true of every organization is that they, those systems need to be useful for the executive team to make um, better decisions and better strategy and work out if what they're doing is working. But they also need to make it easier for um, the people using those systems for their everyday life. So, you know, like the appraisal stuff, it should be easier for that doctor to just do their appraisal, not have a system just so that you can record that they did that appraisal. Just in addition, the, the stuff that we're talking about only really works and I'm going to pay you a nice compliment here. Wow. Oh, nice. Thanks. <laughs> Rarity. Business so when you have someone at the, the head of the organization that is able to sort of see over the horizon and, and say, well, look, there's a lot of things that work in a lot of places and there's a lot of new sort of innovative technology that's coming in. And it's really something that we can apply. But how do we utilize these things? And sometimes the NHS will only, or the landscape around sort of software in the NHS will only improve when people start to take what they probably consider to be our rather large risks um, around things like open source using um, artificial intelligence. When they have people that are able to, as I say, sort of look over the horizon and say, well, actually, these are the benefits and then the pitfalls are are relatively small and it's a future. And I know Kevin says it a lot, you know, it's, it's, it's a future that you can look at and it's coming whether you want it to or not. You know, this this stuff, it's already part of our life as it is. So let's, let's utilise it to, to improve the way you do things and allow you to sort of get on with the jobs that vocationally, for most, you know, most people in the NHS, you've got into to, to help people. You don't want to be spending all your, your time operating software. So let's, let's think about things like that. So that's something that Kevin is, is, is really passionate about and also sort of drives the team forward in is, is looking at these new opportunities, seeing how technology can actually change that landscape. And I think, you know, our, our hopefully our influence is, is growing in a good way um, to that. And that's not about capturing the market for ourselves. It's actually beneficial for all system providers to look at these things. So, yeah. yeah. Good job, Kevin. Thanks. <laughs> You're welcome. I'm related to SARD, and um, there's been some low-level um, improvements. Uh, so I think there was a poll a few years back, maybe about five years ago, the they were asking people, you know, what changes need to make a change in the NHS to improve technology. And I, and I think a number of other people would just said, just update your internet browsers, please. Yeah. <laughs> like, there's one thing you could do to improve the NHS technology generally, it would be to update all of the browsers um, because they were all running on really old browsers and that, that made building apps for them and they were missing out i think on this this coming revolution of of internet only based applications which i think is the world that we're all familiar with now like i think we've all got into that place where we're like oh most applications we use are internet based like even word and excel more of that stuff is going online and you you do it online and we could see that coming we're, we're there now five years ago i don't think that was obvious to people and and it was like we're going to miss out on that but for whatever reason they seem to have caught up and 
Um, I think there is a more of an emphasis on um, on technology in the NHS. Obviously, Matt Hancock himself has got a tech background. I think his family come from uh, they built those postcode address finder things. So he's he's you know I, I don't get into the politics of it, but it's very clear that he has got a technical interest. And I understand that, that some people are against that idea as well, that, oh, technology will save us, you know, the, the techno-utopians that believe that you, the only thing that, that needs to be done is for technology to come in. And I've actually seen a bit of criticism of AI and technology in response to COVID was, yeah, we've had this massive problem come up and, you know, what What did the technologists do for us? Nothing. It came down to, you know, nurses and doctors doing what they've always done. And the technology didn't really, really help. And to that, I would say, actually, people are communicating on Twitter and they're sharing all of this data. And, you know, sometimes technology is so, so familiar to us, we don't even notice how it's helping us. But that's, that's moved, but it has moved things forward a lot because actually I think what some people in the NHS have realised is that the use of that technology would have really been helpful, um, especially around rostering staff when, you know, half of your workforce may be off at any one time or whatever because they're having to self-isolate. Actually, it becomes even more difficult when you use old sort of systems that are reliant on doing things in advance, you know, like six months in advance, then you're you're kind of stuck. So I think actually, you know, as much as COVID is not a thing to, to celebrate in any way, I think one of the positives, if you can pull them out of it, in terms of technology is that um, people have started to realise that it isn't going to create a utopia, but it can certainly help. It can certainly enable people to get on with their jobs in these sort of difficult times. So I think it, I think in that respect, um, it's moved technology forward and software forward quite a lot in the space of six months. Particularly video meetings. Yeah, that's huge. Um, you know, Microsoft yeah. Teams, and you, that's made a massive difference. We've been able to engage with clients much more directly and instead of traveling up and down the country um, for what is relatively short meetings, um, I think people are more inclined to to do those things. And it does bring a lot of progress. I'm not even a big fan of... of um, online meetings I much prefer meeting people in person but I do think that's that's been one one big benefit yeah yes if you had a magic wand what technical admin software challenges general kind of challenges would you solve right now I think it's really for me in two parts one of them is something we've already sort of mentioned which is I think one of the challenges is is it's not just the idea of what you're trying to do, but doing it in the right way. So interoperability is, is a big challenge, not necessarily because it's a sort of insurmountable mountain to climb. It's, it's a case of, of saying, well, how are you going to climb that mountain? You're going to make it very difficult for yourself. You're going to leave all your equipment at the bottom and sort of try and climb without ropes or what have you, or is there a way where things have been proven to work very efficiently. So you could almost just take a helicopter up to the top. It's, you know, in this case, it's not about the, you shouldn't be looking at it in terms of the success of sort of man versus nature or woman versus nature and, and, and the, the journey to get to the top. In some cases, the case of saying, how do you get to the top the quickest and most easiest way that benefits everyone? And I think that's one of the challenges is about, how interoperability is going to work. And I think that's something certainly that Kevin is 
sort of very passionate about. To stretch your analogy, I think when it comes to interoperability, we, you do have all these people trying to climb this mountain. And I think Phil and myself and the rest of the team are kind of like, uh, got a helicopter here, guys. Is that what happens? Really easy. There's a nice sort of easy way to do interoperability. It works in other industries. And, and I share the passion for getting interoperability working in the NHS. I'm really concerned about how we're, how we're going about it. But that is an entirely different podcast. I think, <laughs> I think that, would probably take, that would take a couple of hours on its own. I mean, clearly, I have a problem with bureaucracy and administration. But I do think <laughs> it's becoming overspecified that there's an interference in that interoperability. Uh, a belief that a, a, a central organization needs to dictate the shapes and interfaces between those systems rather than heavily encourage purchasers to push their suppliers to make sure that they have good function APIs. And um, so it's a mess, really. Um, unfortunately, I think some of the work that's being done on interoperability is actually going to hold the industry back. And it's also going to prevent new entrants to the market. But that's a big gripe of mine. And I'd love to explain it in more detail, but it would take the rest of this this podcast to do so. In short, there is a helicopter. <laughs> yeah, there, there uh, is. We'd rather show you the helicopter. There's a helicopter. We'd rather show you the helicopter um, rather than this really painful way to climb a mountain. If you talk about technical solutions, I think you can just look and you can say, oh, actually, there's too numerous to mention that we'd love to be helping to figure out bed management, the rostering stuff that we're already doing, risk management. And something I've become more passionate about, which is sort of like the patient journey, how you move through from sort of diagnosis to referral to treatment to sort of outpatient clinics and so on, and, and, and where your records go. Because I think that sort of interoperability or sharing your data is something that doesn't really exist. But, but for, for us, it's as much of a sort of a curse as anything else because it's really easy to get distracted because you can see all these things and think, oh, you know, we could just, if we could just tweak that or change that or make it simple. But but then you take your eye off the, the thing you're working on at that particular point in time. And I think with the rostering stuff, for example, that that should create a massive change within the NHS in a really positive way in terms of how you use your resources, how you save money, how you rely less on sort of bank and locum and, and, and agency staff and things like that. But it is, it's really interesting because Kevin and I over the last 10 years have, have talked about numerous things that we'd like to, to get involved in. But I think it's just one, one step at a time in terms of, Let's change how that works and then we can move on to the next bit. So it would it need to be a pretty big magic wand to to do everything I think we would like to do. Yeah. I mean the the obvious massive technical problem, which I think you know you don't need to be working in healthcare tech to notice this, is case management of patients. I think we've all experienced that thing where you go to the doctor and you have an MRI and then you go and see another consultant and they they're completely unaware that you had an MRI and they're like, why did I get you to do that? And why, why have you come to see me? Yeah. Well, I don't know. I was referred to you or, you, tell me. you know, and um, so there's that mass, there's that big problem that we're all aware of. That's, that's, that's the big monster tech problem for the NHS. And I've got opinions on how that should be sorted, but uh, commercially we're not, going in that space and actually it's for the reasons i fear a little bit with this interoperability with um, workforce systems is that actually it's a very it's actually very heavily regulated in terms of like fire standards and hl7 and it's it would be hard 
to build a really neat, simple, cheap case management system for the NHS. Actually, it wouldn't be hard. I'll take that back. It'd be really easy to do that. It'd be really hard to sell it and really hard to make a success of yeah. that business in the NHS and, and throughout the world, in fact. It doesn't seem to be done very well anywhere. Um, you know, maybe Estonia or, or a country like that that, that that seems to got a handle on it. But they, these things are not easy to access and I, I worry that some of that's coming into our workforce system. But as Phil said, the NHS has got loads of problems and it's really easy to get distracted. We don't really deal with clinical systems uh, as inpatient systems much, just on the fringes of where it connects to job planning. But we don't really touch that. But I do look at it and go, oh, I'd love to sort that out. But One day. I was going to say down the road, maybe, yeah? <laughs> no. No. <laughs> <laughs> no. It's so simple in a sense. Like, we, we you know, we talk about... Um, our um, own CRM, like customer relationship management system. You should be able to look at any any one of our clients and see the history. Oh, Mariah spoke to them. Phil spoke to them. Here's what it was. Here's the emails that went through. This is a meeting that we had with that person. You know, to have a, a paper trail of, of their of their journey. Now, loads of companies do that. You can go to loads of companies and say to them, "What happened to this person here?" And they'll say, "Oh, they're connected to so and so, or they left that company and they went over here." And you'd get all that data. So yes, yes, it's very sensitive data. Those concepts are not alien to other industries of just basically having knowledge and information about a person and seeing it all the way through and uh so it's that that to me is really frustrating because it's it's something that could be solved and everyone everyone knows it's a big problem and it's not solved and i can't really see it getting solved that's depressing Uh, it's very depressing yeah (laughs) get that i do admit i do think pirate groups you know permissionless innovation it sometimes people a technology arrives that allows people to do the job to fulfill that process unofficially so you've I've, you've seen this in whatsapp with doctors and rostering like that technology was not built to help organize rosters in hospitals but wow there's a lot of people using whatsapp to sort out their rosters in hospitals really yeah yeah <laughs> interesting doctors would struggle without whatsapp i think they would not everywhere i'm sure there are places but there's definitely lots of whatsapp groups for doctors all over the country wow unofficially so they're you know that's piracy right like that's permissionless innovation Good. that's exactly what we need. come from the ground up people have gone oh, i really need to be able to talk to all of my cohort i need to be able to talk to them quickly at the weekend and say oh can you cover that shift it's not an easy way to there's no easy way to officially organize that but people as always find unofficial ways to do the same thing this seems like a great time to discuss sard's newest product erostream the thing about erostream is that it's actually really hard to describe i recently recorded a video with kevin monk a co-founder of sard with his explanation which you have got to see he really explains how e-rostering works which i'll try to sum up now <laughs> basically it's all about a declarative artificial intelligence and no we're not talking about robots here but essentially a system that does the maths for you most people understand rostering which can be a really complicated and difficult process trying to match up the needs with the wants e-rostering takes that very very complex method and simplifies it. It 
essentially does the job for you. It takes off the guesswork and in a matter of seconds, creates the perfect roster for the workplace as well as the employees. To find out more, please visit our website, sarjv.co.uk forward slash products forward slash e-rostering. One of our chat boxes will probably pop up and you can get in touch with our customer service team straight away to learn more. And in terms of that video, we'll be giving more information soon. Is there a particular way you've set up SAR to meet the challenges of the NHS? Yeah, no, well, there is. I think I think we we set up SARD to be sensitive around sort of like the varying requirements of each trust. We because we came from a trust, it was really easy when Kevin was working with sort of Bookie and Iffy and the other consultants to do stuff. It'd have been really easy to think that's the way all NHS trusts operate. And therefore, this is a standard system that everyone uses. But but actually, fortunately, during the, the development. Oxley's merged with two community trusts. So we we instantly got to see that there was going to be some real variations in things like culture and processes and ways of working. And and it, I think it, it it led to the backbone of sort of the system as well as the, the company to say there's got to be a, quite a large amount of flexibility and configurability in how we do things and, and what we do. Because every time, and it's been true for the last 10 years, every time we go to a new trust, they present a different challenge. Even though it's all around the same areas, they've got different things that are in their policies, in their processes that they've got to to deal with. Um, But the way in which we do that in terms of setting up SARD, which was intentional, and I know Kevin sort of brought things in very early that other people sort of wish they had, done as well but it's very difficult to replicate was around chat support and the support team we listen to all of our users and any user of our system from the administrator to the end user can talk to us directly and that was an intentional setup because it allows you this sort of beautiful constant feedback of this works this doesn't work this is something that would be beneficial for all trust or it would work within our trust and help us out i think unless an organization really understands their market and the only way you can understand your market is by being involved in it and listening to it, um, then you're, you're going to get stuck really quickly. Um, and I think as such, one of the main things we've done, and I know Kevin is, is very passionate again about sort of making sure that you, you have the right skills, um, like skill sets or skill stack in an organization that people are always looking for new things and new ways to do stuff. It's about not standing still. We as a business are no, in no way like we were 10 years ago in terms of what we offer, but culturally and the way in which we do it is almost exactly the same as how we started, um, listening to clients and delivering the things that they want. So, yeah, I think I think the simple answer to that question is, yeah, we did set it up in a particular way to meet those challenges and, and touch wood. It's worked. Yeah. Well, that's pretty much what Jeff Bezos said, and he seems to know a thing about running a business. Just a little bit. Yeah, he's doing all right. You know, it, with Amazon, I think one of his sayings is investing in the things that don't change. Yes. Whatever system we're building, whether it's e-rostering, whether it's this fantastic patient case management system when we're all 70 years old, <laughs> uh, whatever it is, customer support is always going to be there, right? You're always going to need that. You're always going to need customer support skills. You're always going to need people who know how to handle a problem, um, how to deal with it. You're always going to need good account management. You're always going to need techies that um, that aren't necessarily 
focused on the specific problem they're trying to solve, but have got that talent stack to go wide and take this new problem and go, oh, I'm skilled enough from the previous things I did that I'm I'm able to adapt. I know how to manage it technically. I know how to d- manage the feature requests. I know how to manage the variability and cultures of the organizations we face. And so all of those things are a really long-term investment. And and the chat system particularly is is just... It's a bit of a flag for us because it's such an obvious, important thing that we do and did do really early on. It seems so obvious that it just seems to symbolize that. Um, but there's, there are many chat system things that we've got in our company that, that have served us really, really well. One of which is just a more general emphasis on customer service. There's just not enough really high-level customer service in any company, I don't think. You, 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 don't, you don't feel handled. We were saying the other day on our, uh, on our internal chat system that when, once you work for Sarge, you will forever be disappointed with most customer service for every company you deal with. <laughs> so true. Like, Why aren't they like us? Oh, good old, can I just talk to the same person could i have to explain it all again and and then when you do find someone who's got really customer service you become really creepily like pray high in praise for them and you're like that's great i love this this is great <laughs> oh you treat me so well i'm gonna go tell your boss and i'm gonna tell you how good you are at customer service <laughs> looking at you like okay. my job, man. <laughs> it's easy when you do it right as well and, 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 and also let's not forget that when that, that used to be managed for us by someone who's now a celebrity. So, you know, um, if you've heard of Nish Kumar, then that's one of our, we don't like to talk about our famous friends. No name dropping. We don't, we don't, but you know, he, he used to do it. He used to do it. So be, be, before he became famous and, and he did, we, we decided at that point that we should maybe let him go yep. and do the Aww. thing that he loved. So anyway, that's very kind of you. <laughs> So how do you guys, talking about your team and staff at Sarge, but how do you guys encourage creativity and innovation within the Sarge family? Yeah, I, I think what Kevin was actually saying before, we mentioned it and we talked to it even in sort of in interview process about this autonomy, mastery and purpose thing. And, and, and I think that's regardless of what role you're perceived to play in the organisation. It was sort of Dan Pink that described it best saying that, or, you know, autonomy was the urge to direct your own life. Mastery was the desire to get better and better at something that matters. And the purpose was yearning to do what you do in service of something sort of larger than yourself. And I think that it's that idea that when you work in SARD, that there isn't, as Kevin's already said, sort of anti-bureaucracy, this, this, this idea that you are constantly asking permission to do something. What we really want, um, with people that work in the organization, we work very hard when we bring people in to make sure that they, they've got that is, is the ability and the capacity to make their own decisions about stuff, to see what's in front of them. Um, you don't employ people that you then go micromanage. You employ people that should be better at their jobs course, than you could absolutely. ever be. You know, that's, that's, yeah. that's the point, right? You don't, we didn't, in, we didn't employ Umarai and then say, right, this is how you do all the content stuff. We, we trust in the fact that you will have your, the focus on what will work best and you'll see all the challenges in front of you. And I think, I think that um, it's really true. You've got to sort of foster this environment where individuals can identify the problems that come up, whether it's on chat or technical issue, they can discover solutions and they can execute them without having to go through this 
long drawn out process of you know please feel please kev can i possibly do this i mean it's so antiquated and 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 it doesn't make any sense and and it 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 cuts out all of the rubbish basically you get to you get you solve a problem in a far more efficient way um and then it's all to do with sort of your intrinsic motivation then because you've got because you're doing something with purpose it leads to more sort of intrinsic motivation and more innovation and i think that the very fact that we started with one module we're now on i don't know how many seven um all trying to deal with specific issues um because one of the things that's also true is we don't we don't deal with narrow problems that have like a simple I again think Dan Pink said this, so it's sort of a simple set of rules and a simple outcome. It's far more broader than that. And Kevin talked about it before with sort of talent stack. When you look at a problem and you've got to be able to see in the peripheries of what what have people not tried? What what are they missing? What's really simple? Um, and we we try our best, as I said, maintaining the culture throughout the last 10 years to instill that in people to say, look, I'm not going to tell you what to do. You know, I'm I'm sort of line manager in name only. It's a relatively flat hierarchy in terms of what you can and can't do. You tell me what you think the best thing to do is, and then go do it. You know, and uh, I know we're both fans of David Marquette, who says the same thing. But but essentially, yeah, we, we encourage people by giving them the responsibility to do their job as best they yeah. can. This is amazing how much creativity flows when you give someone some autonomy. Yeah, I think that's out of those, those things, obviously the mastery and being good at what you can do, mastery being good at your job <laughs> and feeling like you're really good at it, purpose that you feel like you're work, working towards something that, that's meaningful. Um, but that autonomy one is the one where people are particularly creative in how they come up with solutions to problems because they don't, they don't have someone looking over their shoulder to confirm that it's the right way to do that thing. That's really, really important. I tell you a funny story when I was in the Ministry of Defence and I I was out working with this squaddy and we had a van. Well, it was a big protected vehicle. Let's just put it like that. (laughs) (laughs) I can't say much more. I don't want to get shot or something. Um, But it was filled up with lots of sneaky beaky material. So it was really clever technology. Amazing. We had a whole procedure for shutting this thing down, you know, certain process for closing it down at the end of the day and closing it. But I remember getting out and we we went to shut the door and I said to this squaddy, I said, "What's, what's the snooker queue for? And he went, oh, that. He said, what I do is um, I stick the snooker cue through there and the, the magnetic fuses at the end, I just flick them with the snooker cue and switch the whole thing off. <laughs> and I found out there was loads of people using these snooker cues to, to turn the equipment off through the doorway because it was too hard to reach the switch. And I was like, oh, that's, that's really smart. <laughs> Like we need to, we need to develop a wooden stick that we now provide to those people so they can switch the mag fuses off at the other end of the van. Um, but the, you know, that's I, I know it's a silly example, but that's when when someone's got some autonomy, as I think the the particular groups that I was working with the MOD did have that they could they could do things like that. But it just always made me laugh. Yeah, it's good. Don't ever, don't over engineer it. You know, someone is going to create yeah. some metal robotic arm for it. Where snooker fine. Yeah, exactly. You know, you ask someone to climb the mountain, and they they don't they forget the helicopter. They're like, oh yeah, how would I climb a mountain? Like, yeah, there's a helicopter. <laughs> <laughs> 
So um, you touched a little bit about the interview process and um, and hiring the right people. Yeah. So you guys have really pulled together a really great team. I have realized that there's quite a few employees who you have met through doing theater. And I was just wondering... <laughs> <laughs> and the yeah, pub. and the pub as well, yeah. And uh, I'm just wondering if you can touch on that a little bit. Yeah, because I'm I'm normally the main cause of those things. Uh, like it's difficult, right? Because you don't um you don't you don't want to favor friends and family and stuff. Like I get I get that kind of anti nepotism thing. But um, there's a book called uh, Good to Great, which is studies companies and how what what is about those particular companies that that got them up there and, and exceeding and doing really well. One of the things that comes out of good to great, and one of the main suggestions is that you you employ who, not what. So sometimes you think, oh, we need someone to fit into this role. So there's the what recruitment and then there's the who recruitment. And sometimes people come along and particularly if you've met them in your daily life and you see how committed they are, you see like you see their loyalty and honesty and their ethics and uh, their work ethic and and how they interact with other people, and particularly in theatres, because in theatres, you know, you do, well, in theatre we do, you're doing it for love, right? It's amateur. Absolutely. All the love, right? So... Um, people who turn up and um aren't i was gonna say aren't late i'm always late for rehearsals <laughs> people who aren't late uh you know people who are committed people who get on with their fellow cast members people who are respectful to the crew and and you just see you see good people you see people who, who work really well and so yeah there is a bit of nepotism but i think it's I, I struggle with it because I do think it's sort of warranted sometimes. Sometimes people, you just see, you see what people are like and you think, yeah, I want, I want some of that personality in our company. But we, having said that, we've had some fantastic hires who we've never met down a pub. So, That's good. <laughs> so, you know, it yeah. is a mixed bag and you want to be, one of the things that we've had a lot of fun with recently is because we've moved on to the University of Kent campus is having a bit more of an interaction with uh, the computer science department and Kent Uni there. And we've brought in um, three, three of the, well, actually four, including Lucy, of the of the computer science department have come and started working with us. And that's so that's been a great sort of source. But again, it's sort of like being in a place and being familiar and building up friendships, if you like, with with places. And I think there's more there should be more of that. And actually, um I know it's one of your later questions, which is sort of what's the one thing that really that people should sort of talk about. And I think it feeds into this is procurement. I think there's something analogous between hiring people you know because you know their character and you know their mentality and you know their work ethic there's also that with software and i don't even care if it's us but and i don't think it's even an nhs thing or a health sector thing i see it everywhere i was talking to um one of my neighbors who's a managing director of marketing um a research company and he was talking about all oh, the procurement poops he has to jump through you know and they've already got in their head who they're already going to assign the bid to and who's going to win it and we have to go through all of us you know, all industries this is so frustrating it's not even a public sector thing it's a private sector thing as well i know um rory sutherland from ogilvy talks about this in his book alchemy about how you know advertising tenders and everyone pitching in for this work and just it must be so impactful to the productivity of the uk 
more generally that we that we have to do this and i don't i wouldn't even care if it it was us losing out on a bid i would rather a trust that said yeah i've got good i've been working with these people over here even it might not be us right. <laughs> been working with these people over here we've i understand they've been building some stuff for us so we've been working closely they really understand my needs and now we want to buy that system and now we're going to go and do a tender and we're going to pretend that we don't have that relationship with them that we don't that we haven't done all that work with them and we're going to make everyone jump through these hoops and uh and then we all fill it out and hey presto they they win or they don't win which is possibly even worse like that you ignored <laughs> <laughs> you ignored that relationship that didn't matter and it, uh, i think we all know this we all know much like we all know that patient case management is a mess we all know that tender-based procurement is a terrible way to pick a product. Yeah, well, I, I, I had a conversation. I had a conversation with Jan, who works with me about this, and it was it was an interesting one because we talked about it. it's not just the tender process; it's the questions that that are asked. And 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 when you're looking at technology, everybody knows that technology doesn't stand still. They equally know within the NHS that policies don't stand still either. Yet they write a series of questions to say, what features can you provide today that solves my problem today, but then I want a five-year contract? And it's about saying, well, actually, maybe some of the things that you should be looking at in terms of those tenders are around, what sort of work do you do? Have you got a proven track record of being able to move with the changes to innovate and develop new things? Because they're, in terms of your relationship building, right? Like with recruitment, when we when we hired um, uh, one member of our technical team, um, Alex, we hired him because one of the main reasons was because he had this fantastic work ethic, um, and he didn't he didn't necessarily fit the bill in terms of all of the qualifications. He had a first in history, I think. Wow! But the point was, is we knew like Kevin and I nailed on knew, and we fought to get him. <laughs> um, that he was going to be a, a roaring success, not because of the skill that he had in the locker on day one, but because of where the capacity that he had because of how his work ethic was. And I think it's, these things are reflected everywhere, you know, and actually Alex went on to be a great success um, with, with us and developed some you know, amazing things and, and, and loves us so much. He keeps coming back, which yeah. is great. But my, same with the tender process, you know, you, you need to just think about how you frame things, right? What, what is it you want? Do you want an innovative company that's not going to stand still and therefore don't ask specific questions that are pinned to a particular point in time or a particular process? Ask questions that really open the company up to say, show me how you've changed things over the last 10 years in your business are you the same business today as you were 10 years ago if the answer is yeah, yes exactly. we're not interested yeah it comes as this idea that not everything that matters is measurable or not everything that measures is measurable matters you know yeah. and you see this in kpis you see it in procurement you see it in lots of things people go oh i can measure it therefore this is what i'm going to use as my guide and uh and my other big gripe about pretender procurement is that it is spec based it's like here's the things that will solve my problem i've i've worked out what the solution to my problem is i'm just asking you if you do all these things that i know are the solution to your problem and uh, i've got a blog post about this which is you know don't bring me don't bring me solutions bring me problems so 
when we engage a client, they often will say to us, this is what we need. And, you know, it's going to do X, Y, and Z. And often we need to pop what we call pop the Y stack on it, you know, ask why five times to get back and find out what, why, why do you want to do that? Why do you, you yeah. know, let's keep going back to this climbing mountain analogy, but why do you need a rope? Why do you need, why, <laughs> yeah. why do you need tea that boils at a lower temperature? What's the, <laughs> why do you need a pressure cooker? Oh, yeah. Cause if you actually found the problem they were trying to get to, which is to get up the mountain, you go, oh, I've got a helicopter. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, we, and we see that so much that it's like, and tenders are so often, here's, here's a big list of all the things that we think will solve our problem. Here's, it must export out to CSV files or it must do this, or you must have a ticket support desk. And like, we've got chat support, like we do have ticket support <laughs> desk, but you don't need it because there's other thing that solves it. Yeah. And um, yeah, so or training you know like training training is often a requirement in a tender and like well you've got online chat support all the time if you get stuck just speak to that person and they'll talk you through it there and then <laughs> i think i think just to add to that i think a lot of times though when you have that uh, you know people bringing you what their solutions are just to take that analogy to the final step we love stretching <laughs> analogy don't we yeah we we do mm-hmm. we do but sometimes it's a realization that you're trying to climb a mountain that you've created and actually you don't need to climb a mountain at all. Do you know what I mean? Not even take a helicopter up to the top, not use ropes. It's people focus on so much about how things have been done. Mm-hmm. That they turn into something that seems insurmountable and they add to it and the mountain gets bigger and bigger and bigger in five years time. They need something else. And sometimes it's just a case of literally pushing them out into one side and saying that that's not where your pro- root problem is. That's not, you know, that, that's, that's something that's taken place because somebody else has focused on a problem. You picked it up and you've moved forward with it and you've got a little bit further up the mountain, but you still can't see the top. So I think that that's, that's something we really try to do. And again, I keep putting words in Kevin's mouth, but it's, you know, it's a case of saying compete on simple, you know, let's, let's think about the simplest path from point A to B that we can help you to get through. What do you really need? What are your outcomes? What, what, what is it that's going to actually affect what you're doing? Not what is it that we can do to help you with all of the things that just happen to be there because of history or because of that's the way it's worked before, which is why this kind of rebellious, rebellious attitude worked so well, sort of going back to the first question was because we threw all of those things out of the window and said, right, let's just, let's just focus on what it is. You know, I'm a, I'm a qualified teacher and I used to do training and every time I'd go into a meeting, they'd say, oh, our numbers are down on this. Phil, we need training. And I'd say, why do you need training? What is it you're trying to achieve? What, what outcome do you want? Is training the, it's like a capsule solution. So, so yeah, we're both, I think we're both very passionate about the fact that, that, that sometimes you just, it, sometimes this is as much about helping people to see that there are different routes sometimes. And we're there really to, to, to help that and to lift it up and, and say that, you know, there's a better way that's, uh, let's help you find it. I think that that's mm-hmm. a common theme too, with SARD in general, is that you, you guys just want to help. <laughs> that's all you want to do. I'm very caring. And you, and you mm. have, you have the capabilities to do that. And that's, that's awesome. Yes, agree. So there's another question, but I think maybe we should stop here and revisit it another time. <laughs> <laughs>
So I literally had one answer and it said AI as simple as that. And that was it. <laughs> that was it. Oh, okay. Oh, that was easy. Right. We can do this again. <laughs> cool. All right. Well, then we'll, we'll revisit that on another podcast if you're up for it. Oh, brilliant. Well, yeah, thank you for setting all this up. Well, thank you guys. I appreciate your time. Yeah. Thank Thanks, you very Mara. much. Thank you to all our listeners who tuned in to today's episode of Sardisms. We really enjoyed having you and hopefully you enjoyed hearing about the foundations of Sard and where its future lies. You can find out more about Sard by visiting sardjv.co.uk or send us a tweet on Twitter at sardjv and use hashtag Sardisms. I'm Mariah Young. Until next time, have a great week.